My beloved in Jesus Christ our Lord, isn't it wonderful to hear the voices of babies again? I'm telling you, it has been a dry run these past months, so that is music to my ears. Music to my ears, so bring the children. And it's nice to see so many of you with us this morning, kind of a feeling of getting back to normal and speaking of that uh, starting this weekend, today or last night, uh, we're going to put uh, receiving the Holy Mysteries, Holy Communion back in its proper place, so uh, we won't be doing it at the end uh, here on out. One of my, well, one of my many favorite movies, uh, it's not my favorite, you, most of you know my favorite movie has been Her. Uh, but this is another fun one I like, and it's The Wrath of Khan. Shoot, when it came out, I think I went and saw it almost eight times, just because it was, I don't know, I liked it. But one of the things that I really liked was Khan, even in the old television show, when he appeared, he had the superior intellect. He was all about the superior intellect of his race, of his genetically altered race. A superior intellect. And of course, he mocks Captain Kirk and the entire Federation with his in, um, superior intellect until almost to the end, Captain Kirk comes around and says, I laugh at your superior intellect. And that brings about his demise, Khan's demise. But this notion of this superior intellect, especially as it relates to a man with God, is a theme that seems to run throughout the salvation. Man is always positing his mind, his reasoning against God, as if somehow he knows better than God for himself and for those around him. You know, we, we just go to the Garden of Eden. We could first of all see one of creations putting their intellect against God, and that was the devil. And we see he's already experiencing his reward for that. The devil's experiencing his own sense of hell in the form of anger. An anger that breeds anger, that breeds more anger. And he's caught up in this living hell of anger. And the angrier he gets, he just gets, wants to spread that anger. Because misery loves company. But Adam and Eve also dabbled in that superior intellect. We can choose between good and evil. We have the reasoning power to do it. We know what's best for us. They were given a will millionly to choose between different sorts of good. But no, they thought they could do something better and they could choose between good and even have a choice of choosing evil. We see that God had created this beautiful garden, this beautiful vineyard, for them. He provided everything they needed. They lacked nothing. But they felt they should know better. And for that, they were cast out and created their own hell. And this would continue on. In the time of Isaiah, the northern kingdom of Israel had stopped worshiping God, well, merely in appearance only. Because as Jeremiah would start accusing them, and even the kingdom of Judea, you go and you, and you commit adultery, and you, you worship Baal, and you offer sacrifices and incense to all these gods, 
And then you rush into the temple and go, oh, but I belong to God and he's going to protect me. You can read that in the second, seventh chapter of Jeremiah. This notion that I can fool God, I can go up on a different hill and worship a different God, but when I come back, I'm still a Jew, he's going to protect me. They think that their reasoning is going to fool God, somehow change God's way of thinking, God's way of working, God's way of love. So Isaiah throws this at them. And this is where Jesus gets our parable today. From Isaiah, it's called the vineyard song, sometimes the parable of the vineyard, but most often the vineyard song. You'll hear a lot of similarities. Let me sing, my beloved, a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge, I beg you, between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield wild grapes, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste, and it shall be pruned, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Isaiah was prophesying the fall of the northern kingdom of Jerusalem, which would come. Because they lost sight of God. He wasn't their all-encompassing focus of life. He wasn't their very center of being anymore. They followed all the other gods in the neighborhood. They did all their other things. And yet they had the gall to think that they come back into the temple and be saved just because of who they were and that they were part of the temple. Their own human reasoning brought about their end and the silence of Zebulun and Naphtali. And now we find ourselves today in this gospel reading. And we hear Jesus, we've been hearing the course of, well, Mark's gospel is reading it, this constant hammering of the Pharisees and the leaders upon Jesus. What authority are you doing these things? Why are you doing these things? You have no right to do it. We belong to Abraham. We don't know anything about you. On and on and on and on and on thinking they have somehow that superior reasoning and intellect that's greater than Christ. And so they were supposed to prepare the vineyard for His coming. Hearts should have been ready. 
for his arrival. They should have known in a heartbeat it was him. But instead, they were whitewashed sepulchers. They were brood of vipers. They were frauds and hypocrites, Jesus accuses them of. Because they liked all the things, the tapestries that came with their office. They liked to be recognized in public squares and have places of honor at banquets and be considered the focal point of who's going to give them and tell them what to do and what's right and what's wrong. They're the source of all information and everyone else needs to kowtow to them. And for that, Jesus gives them this parable. And of course, they are the studiers of Scripture. They know where this parable came from. They recognized it instantly. For at the end of this pericope we heard today, right at the very end, Jesus says to them, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom shall be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce its fruits. At this, it said the Pharisees realized that Jesus had been talking about them and planned to arrest him. But they could not for fear of the crowds. Now we find ourselves in the new vineyard that our Lord himself planted. That he gave us everything. He gave us the walls of the church, if you will, the fence to keep us safe, the sacramental life, the teachings of the church, Holy Scripture, and the, the traditions that the fathers have handed down onto us. Everything we need for salvation is given to us. What more could he do? He gave us his own son and died for us so that we could have this life. Now we have to realize what, what is our response. How am I going to stay in this vineyard? How am I going to keep from being cast out? Because if we go on with our own arrogance thinking that we have the right to judge, that we have the right to pick and choose anything that the Holy Scripture says, that Jesus says, then we're going to find ourselves in trouble. Because it is not an option to pick and choose what Jesus tells us to do. It is not an option to love, not love your neighbor. Jesus says, love your enemy and love your neighbor. It's not an option. Not an option. If someone slaps your face, turn and give them the other one. It's not an option, he says. If someone asks you to walk one mile, you're to go two. If someone's thirsty, you're to give them a drink. If somebody's naked, you're supposed to clothe them. These aren't options. We're called to do that. But if we're not careful in thinking we can pick and choose what I want, well, then we're going to find ourselves also having our garden ripped out from under us. The church won't go anywhere, but we'll find ourselves outside of it, outside the gate, outside the church, thinking we know best. So how do we stay in? The path is through humility. If you ever climb a mountain, the higher up you go, at one point, you leave the tree line, and at some point, all you get, you leave even the vegetation line, and all there is is rock and dirt. But when you look down in the valley, there are the river. There's where the streams flow. There's where it's green and lush and fruitful. 
pride leads to barrenness and death. But humility allows us to stay fruitful and refreshed. So it is through the path of humility that we stay in the church. It's through the path of humility that we're able to follow the teachings of Christ as he directed us to do. And not try to justify everything we do so that we don't have to do it. St. Paul, at our beginning of our epistle this morning, gave us some words of encouragement. Words that he gave to the Corinthians in his last letter to them. He told them, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and in all that you do, do it in love. Be on guard, not against just others, but against your own actions, your own way of thinking that might start to find itself contrary to the Scriptures, contrary to our Lord, contrary to the teachings of the church. Be firm in the faith. Don't let the winds of time and the, the, the people around us sway us from what we believe and know to be true. And they were called to be courageous and strong. In the midst of it all. And everything we do, everything we do, everything we do, and this is how we can love our enemy, is through love. Everything has to be of love. That's the foundation of all. God so loved the world, so loved us. And he's asking us to do the same. So let's remain within the vineyard. Let's grow in our faith through humility, through meekness and kindness and mercy and forgiveness, showing respect to one another, building up one another in Christ, not tearing them down through bickering or intrigue or an air of superiority or whatever it might be. Whatever our reasoning is, usually it's a desire to have power over somebody that we make others small. Let us be humble and produce great, great fruits. Let our grapes be thick and plump. So when our Lord comes again, and He certainly will, he will find us ripe for the harvest and bring us into his heavenly kingdom. Man has always tried to out-manipulate God, and he still is after all this time. And we as Christians can fall into that ourselves. But we must strive with the greatest of determination to resist that. To remain humble and stay in the vineyard that the Lord has prepared for us.